1: Welcome to Heritage Radio Network on Tour. I'm Katie Mosman-Wadler, and today we are broadcasting from day two of On the Rise, the International Symposium on Bread at Johnson & Wales University in Charlotte, North Carolina. Today's coverage is brought to you by Charlotte's Got a Lot and supported in part by the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm very excited to welcome our next guest, Dr. Erin McKenney. She's a microbial ecologist, and she was the keynote speaker for On the Rise. Welcome, Erin. Thanks so much. Pleasure to be here. Um, so what does it mean to be a microbial ecologist?
2: Oh, it means a lot of things to a lot of different people. But in my life, it means um, I, I'm intensely interested about the complex communities that live in your gut and in foods um, and why different types of microbes live in certain places and not in others and how they live there.
1: Awesome. Awesome. And can you give us your background and sort of how you got interested in this field and your educational background so far?
2: Yeah, it's it's been kind of a long and winding road. So um, from age 4 to 24, like going way back, I wanted to be a veterinarian because I always loved animals. Um, and that clearly didn't work out. But instead of getting to go to vet school, I did get to go live in Orlando and work at Disney's Animal Kingdom um, as a nutrition intern. Uh, so studying wild animals that we keep in captivity, how do you feed animals that live in the wild, foods that are you know, commercially available, that humans have readily available, um, and still satisfy their nutritional requirements. So I got really interested in the ways that we can take care of animals best, and in nutrition as a foundation for good health. That's also where I learned about gut microbes, these hundreds of trillions of superhero sidekicks that live in your colon from birth to death, and they're helping you every step of the way. They're with you every day of your life, digesting your food, You know, teaming up with your immune system to help you, you know, fend away pathogens. They do incredible things. So um, for eight years, I was in a master's program at NC State University. And then as a PhD student at Duke University, I was studying gut microbes in primates and in these rogue carnivores that, um, you know, originally might have eaten meat. But since then, they've gravitated to all fruit diets like the binturong, uh, which is a rainforest dweller uh, in Borneo.
1: Um, what, what sort of animal should I be picturing right now?
2: <laughs> They're also called bear cats. So ah. yeah, picture yeah, picture kind of an otter-like face, you know, long whiskers, um, but these like peaky little perky ears on top, um, like a cat, but then the thick, coarse black fur of a bear, but a really long prehensile tail
1: whoa I mean, they're wild whoa yeah
2: yeah um can, can they hang from them um I have not seen that I think <laughs> they generally use them for balance okay um yeah I haven't personally seen them hang but mm. maybe okay they can sorry we got um, a little side y- yeah there, but exactly, I'm fascinated exactly binturongs <laughs> they're worth the side oh, trip right yeah um it's like the world's the largest frying pan yeah <laughs> <laughs> um so so going from you know all of these incredible animals and the microbes that live in their guts that help them digest different diets in different parts of the world. Um, I was also teaching the public uh, about gut microbes and why they're so important. So many people across all ages of life, they they think when you say bacteria, you know, it's got to be germs. And that is completely untrue most of the microbes that live on and inside us like they cover us they outnumber us and if they were all pathogens we would not be here because bacteria are really good at what they do right so most of these microbes are on our side or just along for the ride Mm -hmm. Um, so I was teaching you know uh, that's sort of a positive message about microbes from kindergarten up through twelfth grade, um, and in you know public places like museums to students of all ages. Um, and that got me on Rob Dunn's radar as a person who might be um, a good fit for the sourdough project um, in which we're we're engaging the public to think about the microbes that live in sourdough starters from around the world.
1: Mm-hmm. So before we get to sourdough, uh, I want to do a little more detail about your research of gut microbiomes. So as an animal nutrition intern, you're studying inputs, but also with your interest in gut uh, microbiota, you are studying of- outputs as well. Uh, so can you great- talk about that project? <laughs> yeah, that's a great euphemization. Um, so- we're going to start with a euphemism, but we're going to leave it behind very abruptly. I think. Leave it behind. I see uh-huh. what
2: you did there. Uh-huh. Um, there are so many puns in this work, right? <laughs> um, Yeah, so working with wild animals, um, even in captivity, most of the species that I've studied are endangered. Um, And lemurs in particular are the most endangered group of mammals on the entire planet. Um, So you can imagine, if you want to study the gut, you are not going to want, desire to or get permission to, you know, Put an animal under uh, anesthesia so that you can cut open its bowels, right? Mm-hmm. So, we want non invasive ways uh, that are not stressful to study these animals' insides. And what better way to study the gut than to study poop, mm-hmm. right? I mean, food, poop, they both have two O's. Um, <laughs> you know, one's in, one's out. But yeah. also, these fecal samples are being offered to us and provided to us. Um, with no stress by the animal, mm-hmm. right? We hope, right? A healthy animal shouldn't be stressed if it's pooping. Right. Um, but also, you know, so it's a non-invasive way to get a look inside the bodies of these creatures. Um, and it's happening all the time, mm-hmm. right? Sometimes on very specific schedules. But yeah, so the glamorous, my glamorous life in grad school, um, I think in the in my bio, it usually says, in grad school, I collected over 140 samples of poop. Mm-hmm from animals belonging to 15 different species at four different zoos um, with other side projects. I think at this point it's way over 250 samples. So yeah, lots and lots of poop.
1: (laughs) And what does that analysis look like? So you have your samples, you are looking at what are the organisms that are actually present there? What else are you looking for um, as far as like composition and number and comparisons, and then the kind of data science on the other end of it Yeah, that.
2: so you're definitely on the right track. The first thing that I do when I get a fecal sample is put it on ice and then get it to a minus 80 Celsius freezer, like super ultra cold mm-hmm. as quickly as I can because that stops the microbes from reproducing anymore. They're really quite happy in gut content. As you can imagine, they're surrounded by food. And to get the most accurate snapshot of life, as it is in the gut at the moment that the animal pooped. You wanna freeze down those microorganisms and stop them, freeze them in time, right? Otherwise, you'll get kind of a shift in the community structure. Mm -hmm. Um, So we freeze them immediately, then I take them back to the lab. I use a razor blade to shave away the outside of the poop because that has been contaminated by the environment, right? Um, I have a colleague who can actually hold a test tube up to the bottom of an animal and she can get lemurs to poop straight into her tubes so there's no environmental contamination <laughs> but it's a special I, connection. Yeah, I am not a poop ninja. <laughs> like Lydia Green. So um, yeah, so my collection technique involves, you know, fresh pairs of gloves and sterile tongue depressors Mm -hmm. to collect these things from the floor. So I shave away the outsides of these pellets. Then from the inside that is, you know, just a pure and true picture of what's happening in the gut, um, I'm extracting the DNA. So you basically kind of pulverizing that poop to make, um, yeah, a homogenous slurry. And then you're filtering out all of the food particles, all of the RNA, all of the proteins, any other contaminants, so that you get pure DNA. And that's from bacteria, from yeast, from viruses, from anything, even from the uh, animal's intestinal cells. So the next thing that we do is send it off to another lab that uses... um, they use fingerprint gene markers, right? So it's it's like 200 base pairs of DNA. So 200 letters. And 200 might sound like a lot. Um, it's not a lot compared to all of the DNA in the host chromosome, right? Or or in the bacterial genome. Um, so it's, it's pretty fast and cheap to sequence, but there's enough information in those 200 bases so that we can tell different types of bacteria apart from each other. So essentially i get um, a file that might be two gigs at the end of the sequencing run Uh, it's going to contain 20 million reads and uh, those might be from up to 200 or 300 different samples so then i have to this is what we call big data right the age of big data i could never look at all of that by eye much less you know um start to analyze it or make sense of it for my human brain without the help of computers. So I have learned to write some computer code and scripts uh, so that I can tell the computer, you know, throw away those sequences, they're trash, they don't have enough information, or there are too many errors. And then um, the good sequences that are left, we can actually compare to each other to find out how many different types of bacteria are there. Um, kind of like comparing last names in a phone book, right? People with the same last name are most likely related. You know, that's the analogy for what we're doing uh, with this data. And then once we know how many different types of bacteria there are in the entire data set, then we can can divide out and each. you're getting
1: relative composition yes too from
2: exactly that. we divide out you know how many of each type of bacteria are found in each of the animals that I studied
1: mm-hmm. yeah and what happens if you want to go deeper onto like a per you know per species level and really understand like the full array of what is the the actual makeup of that microbiome oh
2: for the bacteria so generally your first pass you're going to get kind of at the genus level right um but within each genus there are so many different species and some of those might be better for the animal uh better partners and some of those might be kind of you know uh, worse for the animal as partners or for health Mm -hmm. um and the same is true by the way all of these techniques we also use for the sourdough project right um this is why i'm asking you go into so much detail about (laughs) this yeah um it sounds very fecal centric but it actually works for food too Mm -hmm. right it's it works for microbes no matter where they're living um so if you want to know the species types so at this point there are some computer analyses that we can run that do tell us from that kind of last name reading um kind of the species level and we would call those sequence variants right so uh, any type of sequence that is different from each other in any way, they could be different species. But the other way is to actually isolate a microorganism living, which is much easier to do from a food sample than a poop sample right? Because the conditions in your gut, there's not a whole lot of oxygen in there. So it's actually very difficult to grow those, um, different bacterial types in a lab. Mm-hmm. Also, do you really want to be growing the microbes that live in your gut just on a benchtop, right? Um, so there, you know, it's difficult for a couple different reasons, like safety protocols, um, oxygen limitation, all of those things. Mm-hmm. But from food, it's really easy, especially from sourdough starters. We've been able to culture most of the, mi- uh, bacteria and the yeast types that live in these starters and once you have um so you can imagine a petri plate so it's a a circular dish maybe four inches in diameter and you're pouring agar into it which is it's a gelatin uh with a lot of nutrients in it so it's it's almost like you're making ramen broth jello right and it has all of the salts sugars proteins fats that microbes would need to live. So when you take a little bit of sourdough starter, dilute it in sterile water, put a few drops of that um, sourdough juice onto your agar plate and spread it around evenly. You're also spreading out the bacterial and yeast cells on that plate. So wherever one cell lands by itself it's going to chew up all of those lovely nutrients in the agar it's going to divide and multiply until it makes a colony that you can see with your naked eye some of these colonies are only as big as the head of a pin they're very small punctiform colonies Um, and then some of them will actually take over the plate they might be um, depending how long you let the plate incubate they might be nickel sized quarter sized half dollar sized Um, those are going to be Your microbes that are growing super fast, they can take over, you know, any situation very quickly. The weeds of the microbial world, right? right? Um, So all that to say, once you have all of these different bacteria yeast growing on your plate in a live culture, then you can separate them. You can isolate their DNA. And because it's one type of organism, you can actually sequence the entire... kind of gene region that would tell you not just the last name but almost like the first middle and last name of mm-hmm. that organism so that's how we can get
1: to a species level and f- throughout your career have you seen the cost of sequencing affect the research that you're able to do in a relatively short time and then what is going to be next that's going to be so amazing about cheap sequencing technology yeah
2: so um that's a really excellent point point. and th- sometimes i feel like like the hipster gut microbiologist because i was doing it a little bit before it was cool or i had started doing it right as it became really cool right Mm -hmm. so my master's program i was using mostly sanger sequencing which is the gold standard uh very low error rates so so it's almost a perfect run right um you're getting kind of a, a perfect translation of what the names of these creatures are um but it it can be very time-consuming, it can be uh, pretty expensive, and you can't get a whole lot of data. So just for uh, scale, my entire master's project was 1,400 sequences, right? Which might sound like a lot. It felt like a lot because I was analyzing by hand in those days, right? Back in the day, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Um, But while I was working on that data set, Illumina sequencing hit the market, right? And Illumina platforms, uh, my first Illumina data set in my PhD had 20 million sequences mm-hmm. for one data set. Um, and, and that's for, you know, a MySeqrun where you're just taking the last names. Um, so that's where big data comes in. And, and those two data sets, 1,400 sequences and the 20 million reads, they cost about the same. So with these, um, we call them next generation sequencing because it's the next gen. You know, it's <laughs> it's like the newest, most exciting. You don't often get better, faster, and cheaper. It's usually mm-hmm. pick two, mm-hmm. if you're lucky. <laughs> um, but I really think with this next generation sequencing, we've gotten all three. And so when I started my first Illumina sequencing run, was probably four or five thousand dollars. But the prices have continued to drop, um, not only because the techniques are improving, but also the chemistries are improving. So we're actually able to fit more samples on a single run. So where my first data set, I put I think 160 samples on an entire sequencing run. Um, Now you can fit up to 300 Mm -hmm. or 400 samples on a run. So it's amazing, not only is it getting cheaper to sequence the samples themselves, but you can fit more samples in a single effort. So it's it's getting, you know, cheaper and more efficient and more effective.
1: Yeah. And it's only going to keep doing that, I think. Yeah. So the the sort of world of like, we could all understand, I think our own microbiome as well as the world around us, which might be sourdough or other foods, or it might be our environment, I think is like at our fingertips. And I'm not sure we know what to do with that yet. Exactly. Well, and, and this is just the
2: technique called amplicon sequencing, where you're kind of amplifying the signal of just those last names of the bacteria in the community or the yeast in the community, right? Another uh, sequencing technique is called shotgun uh, metagenomic sequencing, where instead of targeting just that last name, fingerprint gene region, you're actually chopping up all the DNA from all the organisms in the entire community at once. So that tells you somewhere in that mix the kind of alphabet soup of the genome uh, is the last name of all of the organisms. But also, you're getting, you're, you're essentially able to then read the resumes of the entire community at once mm-hmm. to find out not just who's living there, but what they're capable of doing, all the skill sets that they might have. And that link from the form of a community, like who's living there, to the function, like what they're capable of doing. That link is hugely valuable for starting to think about, really, why does it matter if you have specific microbes in one environment and not in another? And how does that relate to what they might be able to do, especially in systems like food or the gut that are going to directly impact the well-being of humans and other animals?
1: Yeah, and I, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think our the pace for understanding the composition of those environments is so much faster than actually understanding the sort of deeper meaning of what that implication is for the food or for our health. And uh, I I don't see that necessarily catching up in the same way because it's not dependent on like a sort of a narrower subset of technologies. I mean, imagine you're trying to figure out like, okay, with human health, what does the gut microbiome mean for us? And there are so many processes that are affected. I mean, we have a vague understanding that probably our gut bacteria are influencing our our thoughts and our cravings, but we don't really know how that's working quite yet and there's so many steps sort of in identifying that and humans are a really difficult research organism because we can't control the sort of external conditions to any one test right
2: absolutely right on all counts there so not only are these communities incredibly complex um but it is incredibly difficult to say okay humans we want to study you only eat this type of food for two weeks or for a month and we're going to clock all of your behaviors the only way you would have the control, you know, without shadowing somebody. And, and Jane Goodall can tell anyone that the moment you start to observe a study subject they will start to behave a little bit differently right
1: Right. in the 18 it's like I'm gonna follow two feet behind you and watch everything you do but don't do anything differently just act normal yeah Yeah, yeah, like pretend I'm not here
2: exactly I mean we've all seen the office right (laughs) at some point you break the fourth wall and you talk to the person who's following you around with a camera and then you know the spell is broken it's not normal life anymore like you know that you're under glass, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So it's it's incredibly difficult, and some might say for those reasons impossible to get a perfectly accurate viewpoint of how these gut microbiomes are tied up in our every moment, you know, of our lives. Um, so a lot of researchers have turned to model organisms, right? Um, and you can get a great deal uh, higher control with lab rats or mice, um, or even with captive primates, right? If you want kind of a step closer to the complexity of a human life, mm-hmm. um, and in a more naturalized captive environment, right? They also, like humans live in captivity, right? We don't think of it that way because we want to say, I love this house, <laughs> but your house is a captive environment. You're not out in nature, in the world really, you know? Right. Um, Yeah, so I, <laughs> think it's just really difficult to to get a perfect view of that and and everything is so context dependent you know uh as much as those mechanisms can be determined in uh those perfect model systems how relevant are they to
1: humans really mm-hmm. yeah so let's talk about bread because bread we have a great deal more control over but it's also incredibly complex um, so we spoke a little bit with Guilan Lacaz about the Sourdough Project yesterday, but in case anybody missed that, can you give just a quick overview of what the Sourdough Project is and uh, sort of the, the purpose of studying microbial environments within bread and fermented foods?
2: Yeah, so our Global Sourdough Project in Rob Dunn's lab at North Carolina State University um, is an effort to try to sample and characterize the microbial diversity associated with you know spontaneously fermented Uh, we, We like to call it wild bread sourdough starters from around the world. So if you're looking for the maximum diversity that occurs in the world, you actually want the least amount of control, right? So instead of asking participants to grow their own starters from scratch using these set ingredients, we reached out to the general public with a survey three years ago and said, if you have a sourdough starter, please tell us about it. Tell us how old it is, where it came from originally, if you know who made it or what company you procured it from. Is your body or the body of whoever is maintaining that sourdough starter, male or female? Do you have pets living in your home? What type of home do you live in? What type of flour do you feed your starter? How often do you feed it? What type of water do you use? I mean, we ran through, I think there were like 70 questions. You know, just everything we could think of at the time. That might predict or inform, you know, or shape the communities living in these starters. Mm-hmm. So we sent that um, survey out to the public. Uh, over a thousand people responded. This is an incredible
1: return rate, right? Yeah, ha- I mean, I did a survey for my graduate research. Um, it was a narrower population than that, but that's a great number to work with. Yeah, you can really learn things from a thousand samples. Really incredible, right? So,
2: um. So we got those a thousand responses back, and at the kind of at the very end of that survey, we said, "Oh, P.S. If you would like to know what microbes are living in your sourdough starter, then send us a sample of it." Um, and over you know, almost five hundred seventy-one people. S- from 17 countries around the world <laughs> sent us a cup of their starter cool. in the mail, like triple bagged and Ziploc baggies, mm-hmm. um, to Tufts university in Boston, uh, where Ben Wolf's lab received them and processed them. Um, and that's over 50% rate of response from a thousand people. I mean, 50% bread Breadheads, especially. Yeah. breadheads for sure. Thank you, um, breadheads. Yeah. It's like, Rob Dunn's lab has a number of public science efforts um, that engage the public to learn more about the science of life around us. There's um, a, There are projects on cats. There are projects on pumpkins, on peppers, on chilies, on ants, uh, on shower heads. I mean, usually if you get a 10% response rate, that's more typical. Mm-hmm. 30% is awesome. So that we got 50% of our survey respondents to send in samples. And there are people still occasionally sending us samples. And we're like, oh, we're really sorry. We're, <laughs> we're sequencing, like a year and a half ago, yeah. you know? Um, but it's it's been incredible. And not only did they send us all of their samples, so they're deeply invested in learning about what's in their starters. A number of these participants joined the Sourdough Project group on Facebook. There are 350 people in that Facebook group, so which is a high percentage of the 571 that sent us their starters, right? And they're on there every day. There's a new post or three of, you know, I'm participant number one hundred twenty, just off the top of my head. Not a real post, you know. Um, here's the latest bread that I've baked with my starter. And they share recipes. They share, you know, hopes and dreams and failures. They ask questions. They're also engaging in the scientific process, which is something that we really hadn't had from another group of public science participants before.
1: Cool. Yeah. I mean, that's just amazing. Um, and I, I think it really like speaks to the community of people who are, like, really, really caring about being hands-on about bread. Um, So I want to know what you learned from the samples so far. And, um, you know, to what extent can you learn about human... Culture from sourdough cultures. Oh, I love that.
2: Yeah, that parallel in the word culture is just like a driving force in my life right now. It's so (laughs) humbling, right? And that love is all around us. Um, (laughs) So, what we've learned uh, is that no matter where you live, across when we compare the microbial communities of all the starters in the world that we've collected so far. And and the caveat there is they are Western-centric, right? So most of our samples came from the United States or countries in Europe or Australia, mm-hmm. right? We didn't have a tremendous representation from other countries. Um, so that's something to keep in mind, right? This, this may be the truth of a certain subset of the world's sourdough starters, right? Um, what we find is that, sourdough communities tend to be for all that they're so stable they tend to be quite simple and for the most part he, uh, only between one and four or five different types of bacteria and yeast make up 99% of the community.
1: So so f- explain for a second how that is possible because you have this living, culture that is being fed regularly and mm-hmm. if you imagine you're leaving food out you know what happens to food that you leave out so how can it be that you've got this living thing full of nutrition and great growing conditions and you're not growing and 10 million yeah different species that are all competing with each other right so
2: and and that's that's a question that we asked ourselves too like why are we seeing you know it's it's when we compared all of the microbial communities across all the starters, we came up with this heat map with these beautiful banding patterns, right? So it, it was like building the family tree of sourdough starters. The more similar your microbial communities are, the more closely related they are on this family tree, right? Mm-hmm. And What we found when we ran that analysis, we call it a cluster diagram, is that there seem to be 15 different clusters of different types of sourdough starters based on the microbes, the bacteria and the yeast that are most dominant in them. So if you put a heat map on that, imagine just bands of red. And you see different banding patterns for each of these 15 types. And there are a couple families where you can see more rare types too, right? Mm-hmm. But for the most part, you just see these big blocks of red um, that, that show, you know, well, this is type 1, this is type 2, this is type 11. Um, so when we then um, asked, you know, how can we explain these patterns in the membership that we're seeing, we found uh, we tried to correlate what the participants had told us in their surveys, all of those human-related things, variables, uh, from how they manage and take care of their bread to how they live in their homes and where they live in the world, we found that, by and large, where you live in the world, geographically speaking, probably to do with climate, that tends to correlate most with the fungi, right? Now, yeast are a type of fungi, but we even found that this geographic signature tends to be left in the molds, which are very rare. Hmm. Yeah. So, so it's like a very faint geographic fingerprint of where you live. Um, and the bacteria follow a totally different rule. They don't care where you live. They care how you live. So no matter where you live in the world, if you feed your starter rye flour or wheat flour, that has a different impact on the number and type of bacteria that live in your starter. Or whether you keep your starter out on the countertop all the time, or put it in the fridge for three weeks, my starters are cold and lonely right now Mm -hmm. while I'm here, right? That also has an impact on the bacteria. So we know that bacteria and yeast are following different rules, but all of those human factors combined only explain 10% of the variation. So where
1: does the rest come from? So
2: that's the question, right? And it it takes humans down a peg because we love to think, (laughs) I know how to make this bread. You know, I mean, we're here this week surrounded by bread experts, right? Mm -hmm. Who can take a given starter, a given type of flour, you know, with a certain amount of water and a certain temperature and amount of time. They can give you a defined end product that is consistent And that has got to do with the human, but it is also driven by the microbes. And that's what we don't understand yet. So to get more to the heart of that question, how are the microbes contributing not only to the breads that we eat, but to the patterns of diversity that we're seeing in these sourdough starters? We turned back to those cultures at Tufts University. We took um, and we asked, you know, is it something about each of these microbes themselves? So when we grew up and measured the growth rate of those most dominant bacteria and yeast that we find in starters all over the world, we find that the ones that take over might be taking over because they grow so much more quickly than other bacteria and yeast it's like back slopping is kind of like mowing your lawn right every time you mow the lawn you're cutting down the grass and some weeds but you're also preventing trees from growing anything that grows more slowly Mm -hmm. is never going to be able to take over a lawn unless you keep up right right Mm -hmm. so when you backslop every day, you're removing like half of the community, right? Mm-hmm. It's like cutting the lawn of your sourdough. So you would be, you know, chopping that tree back down to a sapling. It's never really going to grow, those slow growers. But the weeds do really well. So that's where Saccharomyces cerevisiae and Lactobacillus sanfranciscensis and the other top most dominant taxa They tend to grow really quickly. So sourdough starters favor the weeds of the microbial world.
1: So um, I used to work with Saccharomyces, and uh, I'm I'm a big fan. But uh, in the bread community, it's becoming a little uncool cerevisiae. Mm-hmm. so um, what's the story there? Because you know it's something that humans have depended on for a long time. Why uh, does Saccharomyces cerevisiae now have kind of a bad rap in the bread so, world? The story that I am uncovering,
2: right, and, and because again I'm not a professional baker, I'm a professional microbial ecologist, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but the story that I'm gathering from the bread community is this idea that you know the commercial yeast, the commercially uh, available yeast, which is Saccharomyces cerevisiae, that specific strain that's commercially available was, pun fully intended, bread in a lab. Mm, bread. <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. So <laughs> it, was, it was bread in a lab, um specifically for rapid rise properties so it's really good at chewing up sugar and starch and converting that to carbon dioxide Mm -hmm. tons of carbon dioxide that's all the bubbles in your bread that make it rise so you get a rapid rise really fast because the commercially available saccharomyces cerevisiae strain is so good at that but that means if it's producing mostly or only carbon dioxide, then it is not producing any of the other volatile compounds uh, that we would call, you know, volatile organic compounds or the aromas that contribute to the complex smells and flavors of bread. That's why the a commercially produced loaf of bread or a loaf of bread that you bake at home with commercial yeast, it's going to smell yeasty for sure because there's yeast in it. Um, right. And it's going to have a lot of air in it but it's not going to smell or taste anywhere near as complex as a loaf of bread that you bake with a sourdough starter, right? So I think there's getting to be some kickback, you know. um, Culturally, when these yeasts came about, and I always think for the US, like this probably came about in the era of fast food, you know, you wanted to mass produce food that was all the same. There was a Mm -hmm. comfort in standardization. So there was, you know, you, everyone really embraced these light, fluffy loaves of Wonder Bread that were all the same. Yeah. You have control. And I think where we're going now more culturally is a shift toward flavor, you know, that we don't mind necessarily that it takes a bit more time or effort as long as that flavor is there. We want the, you know, the real experience of the foods. And to get that, we've got to turn away from the commercially available Saccharomyces cerevisiae to all of these other strains and variants of Saccharomyces cerevisiae that are occurring all around us in breads
1: across the world. Mm -hmm. Awesome. So now that um, you guys are kind of advancing the sourdough research, what are going to be the sort of next steps there and what might be um, takeaways for professional or really dedicated home bakers yeah
2: so um, now that we feel like we kind of have a handle on who's living in these starters and at least one of the aspects of why those starters might be so dominated by these very few but very specific types of bacteria and yeast the next obvious question is how do those different microbial communities affect the bread that we're baking from those starters so first, we actually um, revived some of the starters in test tubes and fed them the same flour and water inputs. So we controlled their nutrition across the board so it's all the same, so that the differences in the dough rise, which we, um, we filmed over 36 hours. And I say we, but this is really my collaborators in Ben Wolf's lab, um, Liz Landis at Tufts University she set up all of these test tube racks fed all of these sourdough starters the same flour and water filmed them for 36 hours then used computer software to measure like the pixel difference in how much sourdough was you know rising and rising in each of those test tubes wow. so using those pixel differences she was able to graph growth curves over time and what we're seeing is it looks like those different clusters of different sourdough types um Do tend to show different rise properties. Um, And then, you know, of course, it's not just how high your bread gets, but how it smells and tastes. So the other big question we had was. How do those different communities or do they produce different aromas? Mm-hmm. So, to do that, we took this, you know, the same set of starters that we grew for the dough rise experiments. Um, we gave those starters again at 24 to 36 hours to a sensory evaluation team at Tufts University. Cool. Yeah, cool job. Oh, they <laughs> are incredible. I call them sourdough sommeliers, uh-huh. right? Because they are able to detect very specific um, scents, very, you know, they, they we have recordings of these sessions, and it's like I could just listen to them forever maybe because <laughs> they're <laughs> passing around each of these starters, and they're like <laughs> several rapid sniffs, and then, you know, if you need a relief, this is a pro tip that they gave me. If you are ever smelling something and you need a break, like you're having some sensory fatigue, Smell the back of your hand. And it's something about smelling yourself resets.
1: Takes you yourself. back.
2: Yeah. Like, huh. who, who needs smelling salts? If you get the vapors, you just, you know, <laughs> smell the back of your hand and you'll just reset and be all right. Aww. You know? Yeah. It's, it's a nice, like, coping mechanism. Yeah. You know? So so they're passing around these starters and you, you just hear them like, oh, fruity, floral, rose. Or brown fruit you know or there were some they're like oh fecal and yeah (laughs) and and they sent us a list of these descriptors you know the top modifiers that they used to describe a lot of the different sourdough starters and they're the most often the most commonly used descriptors were highlighted in red and one of them was like burnt perm hair
1: that's very specific
2: right I don't think that I have a marker for that in my brain, right? But they, um, while I was visiting Boston last week, um, I got to meet with the sensory team, and they happened to be doing um, a different, you know, flavor comparison. I think it was of milks, right? And so they said, "Oh, sip this," and I'm like, "What is that?" And they're like rubber glove and as soon as you have the words Mm -hmm. for it you're like that's absolutely rubber glove how did i not know (laughs) how do i know what rubber glove tastes like but like somehow you know it's in there Yeah. yeah oh it's definitely in there so rubber glove was not an aspect of the sourdough starters but they trained their brains and their noses together to come to a consensus among across these um three specialists and they had this list of you know this is What we smelled in these different starters, you can imagine, we only had them do a small batch at a time because nasal fatigue is a real thing. Yeah, Um, and it, you know, at some point, even the back of the hand can't bring (laughs) you back from that fatigue. Um, So once they trained their brains, then we actually took uh, a sample of the smells. We kind of used—it's called a twister bar. It's magnetic, so that you can use a magnet on the outside of the test tube lid to suspend this sticky bar that collects all of those aromas from the air above the sourdough starter that's growing in the tube right
1: it sounds very magical looking it's it's awesome it's, it sounds it's, like it's, a magic it looks yeah. like it's defying gravity yeah. exactly um so, so you just take your hovering smell collector right inside your
2: tube of air as you do yeah And then, you know, after the requisite 12 hours of smell collection, then you put it into this tiny little glass vial and load it onto a gas chromatography mass spectrometer or GC mass spec. And it's, it is probably between three and four feet wide. It's between two and three feet tall, right? And you load this little smell magnet collector into uh, the input and it, it, kind of bakes off all of those smells and gets them back into the air and then collects them into this really long tube and it's a really long tube so that all of those different compounds that are responsible for the smells separate off by size so the lightest weight compounds the smallest tiniest ones they zip down that tube really fast and they burn off first right Mm -hmm. so when they hit the flame. Then a signal goes to the machine that reads, oh, there was this much. It, it writes a peak on this graph that it's building. So if there's a whole lot of that first compound, then the first thing, it's almost like a seismograph, right? But it's, it's for the amount of these different compounds that weigh different amounts. So they come off at different points in this reading. So at the same time that it's being read, half of the smells have been split off to be quantified and identified there. Half of them go down another tube to what we call the ODP sniffer device. And it kind (laughs) of, it's twisty at the base, almost like some of those CFL light bulbs. Mm -hmm. But then it ends in this flared little plastic funnel that you stick your nose all the way into. So then you've got these sourdough sommeliers who've already trained their brains and their noses on the starters. So then for each starter, as the smells get baked off and identified, they've got a headset on so they can dictate the smells. They've got their nose buried into this little plastic funnel, and they have their finger on this remote control mm-hmm. to mark the intensity um, of you know on a on a 4 point scale for like how strong the smell is
1: so they're actually labeling the mass spec peaks in real time
2: in real time they're that dictating so cool. yeah and then their dictations are annotated onto the graph for like oh for this peak you you said woody and roses and then you have to go back after that and see how big was that peak? Was it mm-hmm. a single compound or was it probably several many compounds, right? And the whole time they've got their nose buried in this uh, funnel, they're just like, <laughs> like circular breathing. It's, yeah. you know, sometimes you need a break just to make sure that they don't hyperventilate, mm-hmm. right? I, it's incredible. It's incredible.
1: This is amazing so
2: that data is still coming in but what i'm seeing for the future of sourdough starter research that to bring us back to your question (laughs) um i feel like what with these all of these different big data sets that we've collected from this global public science project i feel like we have an opportunity to really understand why specific microorganisms might be highly dominant in different sourdoughs like why do we see these 15 different sourdough types and not 17 and not five different sourdough types right Mm -hmm. but it also why do we see them regardless of where people are living in the world um, or how they're treating their starters but then also if you have that microbial makeup why we then how those microbes might then be affecting the flavor and the then the rise characteristics of your bread so you can imagine if somebody really wanted to apply all of this knowledge i i'm thinking of as a sometimes home brewer right we always think oh what do i want to make you know and you walk into the homebrew supply store and you know you get like a clone recipe like oh if you want an abbey double you know then follow this recipe and it's with a specific types of malts in a specific ratios specific yeast strains specific hop varieties can you imagine a world where then you have a home bakers mm-hmm. you know guild or association or or supply stores where oh if you want this bread might we suggest this blend of these types of flours these types of yeast and bacteria right and then you'll get this bread
1: I mean that would be incredible yeah uh, and, and then we could also maybe for once and for all, like, figure out the New York bagel thing. And <laughs> <laughs> this is a question we're plagued by. Yeah, exactly. um, but yeah, that sounds like amazing. And there's no reason ultimately that we shouldn't be able to get there. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's knowable. But we it's just a huge amount of work. Funding. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that is amazing. So I can't wait to check back with you and find out what the updates are. It has been so fun to sit down with you, Erin. Thank you so much for sharing. Thank you so much for having me. Um, you need to let us know when you're in New York and come to our studios. We are inside a shipping container in a pizza restaurant in Brooklyn, I can't think uh, so of a better place to. to be. Yeah, it's it's pretty great. <laughs> I can't wait to visit. <laughs> so we're excited to have you. Um, thanks again. This has been Dr. Erin McKenney joining us on Heritage Radio Network On Tour from On the Rise, the International Symposium on Bread. Our coverage today is brought to you by Charlotte's Got a Lot, and HRN On Tour is supported in part by the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. Heritage Radio Network is a member-supported nonprofit. We appreciate all of your support. Thanks for listening.